The prophet Samuel gets a little sleepy. St. Paul talks about freedom and divine indwelling, and Christ issues an eternal question. Welcome to Scripture Commentary. Today, I am discussing the readings for the second Sunday of Ordinary Time. Remember to like, comment, share, subscribe, do all the things. That way I can combat the algorithm gods. Also, you can ask a question and I will answer it on the podcast. You can ask by emailing me at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. So you might be wondering, second Sunday of Ordinary Time, what happened to the first Sunday of Ordinary Time? And that is a great question. The mystery of the first Sunday of Ordinary Time. Technically, that first Sunday is the baptism of the Lord. So you might also wonder, well, last Sunday when I went to Mass, it was the Epiphany, not the baptism. But the baptism of the Lord was on Monday, the 8th. So where was the first Sunday? But, you know, that's just the paradox of faith, I guess. Catholicism and the liturgical calendar is a truly mysterious paradox. Anyway... Let's jump into the readings. So our first reading comes from 1 Samuel 3. It's a very famous reading where God calls to Samuel while he's sleeping in the temple. And the prophet Samuel is kind of confused and thinks it's Eli who's calling to him. And then Eli gives him the famous advice to say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So I want to talk a little bit about the symbolism here of sleeping. It says that Samuel was sleeping in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So a little bit of background. This would have been, uh, it would have been Samuel's job to watch over the golden lampstand, the menorah in the sanctuary's holy place. His job would be to keep the candles burning. So that's why he's sleeping in the temple. If it seems weird, there was actually, you know, there's actually a historical reason why he might be doing that. But so the symbolism of sleep. So Sleep is a one of those symbols that has many layers and many facets and aspects to it. Sleep is multi-layered. On one hand, sleep is kind of uh, archetypally bad, or sleep could be considered a bad thing in a spiritual sense because it is emblematic of spiritual sloth or of dullness, uh, of sleep to God's presence within you. But on the other hand, Sleep could be this kind of notion of peacefulness in God, of tranquility in God. I'm going to use a lot of St. John of the Cross on this because he, he uses the image of sleep frequently. And he uses it both in the positive aspect of being at peace with God, being tranquil, putting your kind of your, your mind at ease for contemplation. But he also talks about it in a negative sense, that one can be unaware or dull to God's presence. So on one hand, sleep is this liminal stage. It's this, this period between kind of the darkness of unconsciousness, this, this, this slipping away into un- unawareness, and then the coming out of that is this wakefulness, this coming to consciousness. And of course, unconsciousness in sleep is associated with darkness. Consciousness is associated with light with coming to alertness. So, and light is is associated with uh, revelation and contemplation. So here you have Samuel who was sleeping, 
And then God calls to him. So God is calling him out of unconsciousness, kind of out of the darkness of error, as St. John the Cross would say, and into the light or into greater knowledge of who God is. Because also in the first reading, it says that Samuel was not familiar with the Lord because the Lord had not revealed anything to him as of yet. Samuel is, on one hand, unaware of God's presence. He's, he's in, he's in the, the negative aspect of sleeping. He, he doesn't know about God. But on the other, you can see he's, he's being awakened to God's presence. He's being awakened to the revelation of God. However, it's not perfect yet because, as it says, God has not revealed anything to him. Revelation is something that has to be revealed to us. We can't, we can't go to it. Only, you know, we can only open ourselves to it, which Samuel is, a, a, I think, a good representative of. Beyond just the, the symbolism of sleep, the, the main theme, I think, of, of all the readings is the idea of a divine call, that God is calling Samuel to, or you know, he's calling him, but he's also inviting Samuel into a, a relationship, but into a greater revelation of, of God. In Catholic circles, we talk a lot about vocation, you know, which is from the Latin vocare, to call, and that vocation or when we talk about vocation, usually we're talking about our primary vocation. So to priesthood, to religious life, to marriage. And that is still true. That, that, is, um, that is a divine call. And that is something that I think we should take seriously and you should discern and you should pray about and you should think a lot about. Because, you know, once you're in, you're, you're in. However, I think sometimes maybe we forget that God doesn't just call us once, but he calls us many times throughout our life. And even before we choose a primary vocation, there is the call to, to follow Christ, that our first call is actually in our baptism, that once we're baptized and incorporated into the body of Christ, and we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that we're actually supposed to follow Christ from then on. There are many callings throughout our life, and that, in a, in a sense, Christ is, is walking among us and, you know, he has his eyes upon us and he's calling us on. He's bidding us to follow him to f- and he's bidding us to follow him every day. It's not just that, that one call of our primary vocation, but it's almost at, at every day in every instance of our life are we choosing to follow Christ. I, I think, again, we kind of frame it in the, the, the big picture. You know, we, we think about the, the calling of the apostles. We think about... Uh, the calling of Abraham or other Old Testament figures, Samuel, like today. And we think that such a powerful event only happens back then. It happens to the apostles and it happens to Samuel, but it doesn't happen to us today because, you know, we don't have these sort of miraculous events. But I I think what we need to do is we need to, to train our eyes to see and our ears to hear because Christ doesn't just call us in the extraordinary and miraculous ways, but I think he calls us through the circumstances of life. Whatever happens to us happens to us by providence. And what happens to us by providence is God's voice. It's Christ's voice bidding us to follow him. Yes, I think Christ calls in in many different ways. He can, you know, sometimes there can be these powerful moments in prayer. Yes, there can be extraordinary or miraculous events. Yes. But sometimes it can be in the, the whispering of your, your conscience that Christ calls you. So what Samuel is 
exemplifying for us today is someone who hears the voice of God and responds with openness. He says, speak for your servant is listening. Once he realizes that it's God who's calling him, it says the Lord came and revealed his presence, calling out as before, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel answered, speak for your servant is listening. So I, I believe it's in, kind of in the Hebrew, it's, or, or at least other translations, it has that the Lord kind of came and stood. By Samuel's radical openness, by his, his, his willingness to receive what God has for him in faith, God kind of stands before him. And I, I think that's what we're supposed to do every day, is we're supposed to you know, kind of wake up and say, speak, Lord, or your servant is listening. We're not the ones who, who speak to God necessarily, or we're not the ones who command God, but it is God who commands us and who speaks to us. But when we say that, speak, Lord, or your servant is listening, what we have in mind here is, what, or what we should be alert to is that how he speaks to us may be obscure, and it may be in circumstances and not necessarily in voice. Although if God chooses to reveal himself that way, that way to you, to you know, kind of speak interiorly to you in your soul, so be it. But I think if we, again, we train our eyes to see and our ears to hear, we'll see that Christ is actually speaking often to us. So these divine calls in, in our lives are sometimes in, in the plain, ordinary circumstances, but they, they kind of come upon us suddenly, and they can be obscure. You, you know, I, I, I hear often, I think a lot of people hear often, that God doesn't speak to me, you know, that or I can't hear God. And maybe there's even uh, a doubt that God speaks. Again, God speaks in the Old Testament. He speaks to the apostles, but he doesn't speak today. He doesn't speak to us. And I think that we need to, to reconsider that and, and think that suffering is a divine call from God. Suffering is an invitation by Christ to enter into a higher knowledge of God and union with God. You know, I, I think about some people that I've met who have suffered greatly, and they have, and they've suffered well. I think that's an important note. And they have a different perspective on life. They have a different view of, of God and of what it means to follow Christ and, and who Christ is. And that's part of these divine calls is to grow in, grow from, you know, kind of the dullness of sleep, the dullness or the comfort of, of sleep into a greater revelation of God and, and to have God stand before you. That's what these calls are. That's what these calls are doing. They're 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 kind of bidding you on. They're encouraging you on. And again, they may not be what we think they are, or they they might be unexpected. But nonetheless, they're these these calls to greater intimacy. And I, I don't I don't think a call necessarily has to be something that changes your mode of life. You know, it's not like you have to go from a single person to then married or, or to a priest or to a religious or something like that. But it can just be a, an interior change, something that, that is not visible. You know, it's, your mode of life is the same, but it's something within you that undergoes a conversion or a, or a repentance. When I was thinking about 
the idea of divine calls in the first reading, I was thinking of the hero's journey, the call to adventure. So the hero's journey was popularized by uh, a writer, um, Joseph Campbell. He wrote a very popular book, Hero with a Thousand Faces. It actually inspired George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars. The idea uh, in the hero's journey or, or in um, Hero with a Thousand Faces is that there is an archetypal story that can be found in many myths and in literature. And in fact, if you're sensitive to it, if, you're, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, this hero's journey is actually taking place in your own life. And the, the basic plot of the hero's journey is kind of giving up where you are, going into the realm of, of adventure, coming to some sort of realization or, or transforming experience, and then returning to normal life. So the first step of the hero's journey is what he calls the call to adventure. So this is giving up where you are. This is the hero realizes that they've been summoned to something greater to, to call out. But, but how the hero is called is different in, in, or it takes different shape. But the hero is always called out into the unknown into into darkness this is a, again i think goes back to the motif we were talking about earlier in the first reading of that samuel is asleep which implies darkness and god is kind of calling him out of the darkness or calling calling him while he's in darkness to adventure into a land of light but he doesn't know about that light and you can also say that uh, what's the difference between you know kind of staring directly at the sun and being in a pitch black room, you know, kind of either way, it's darkness to our eyes. You know, you're being called into pure light or into pure darkness you can't see. What's happening here is sleep is a, a symbol for comfort. Samuel's in a life of ease, but he's being called to an adventure with God. He's being called to, to something that, to step out into the unknown. And the only way you, you can accept that call and the only way you can step out into the unknown is to have this radical openness of speak, Lord, your servant is listening. You can only open yourself up to receive the call and just have faith to accept whatever that may be. I've often thought that if you ask God to reveal himself and you ask God to show you the way or, or to give you a sign or whatever, or whatever it is, he will. God will do it, but it might not be what you think. And while asking God to reveal himself, also ask for the strength to accept what he reveals because it can be very difficult and very hard to accept. Moving on to the psalm. The psalm also picks up the same idea again, the first reading and psalm always connected. So our psalm is from 40th Psalm and it has some, some verses here. Sacrifice or offering you wish not, but ears open to obedience you gave me. So the sacrifice mentioned here, we might call a sacrifice, uh, a superficial sacrifice. So sacrifice can indeed bring one closer to God. It can be a part of doing God's will. God could ask you to sacrifice any number of things, but I, I think it can also be a substitute for doing something harder. Sacrifice can be something 
external to you, but what God is maybe asking for is internal sacrifice of yourself. In the Old Testament, in this particular context, it's not the animal that the Lord wants as a sin sacrifice. The Lord wants the willing obedience of the offer. He wants the, the psalmist, or this, you know, we can apply to ourselves, he wants us to be obedient instead of sacrificing the animal, sacrifice your will to me. Again, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. That is a sacrifice of obedience. That's a sacrifice of your will. Whatever it is you will have me do, whatever you were calling me to, I'm, I'm willing to step out into the unknown and go on this adventure. So God wants humble repentance of the sinner whose true offering is the sacrifice of self-interest in a relationship which kind of the love of God comes before the love of self. He's asking for the sacrifice of self to greater love of God. Another verse, to do your will, O, o, God, o my God, is my delight. What David or the psalmist is addressing here is, is this idea that joy comes from living in obedience with God's precepts, the law, but that the law is not just what's on, you know, it's not just the ordinances, it's not just keeping the rules, but it's supposed to be the path of life. It's supposed to what it's supposed to be what gives your spirit life. What the psalmist is saying is for us, we should find our delight in doing the will of God in sacrificing our will for God's will. Again, being open to whatever that is. Another verse. I announced your justice in the vast assembly. I did not restrain my lips as you, O Lord, know. This takes it a step further, saying that instead of just sacrificing animals, something external to you, the psalmist is saying you have to sacrifice yourself, you have to sacrifice your will, but do not do it just in words. Don't be passive, but be active about this. Do not restrain my lips. So he's not silent. He's vocal, vocal about this. You must proclaim the goodness of God, is what he's saying. And he's saying he's doing this by a visual and active commitment in his will and in his body to living the will of God. Pin this idea of embodiment and, and doing the will of God actively. It's going to be imp important in our second reading. The second reading is from 1 Corinthians uh, in the sixth chapter. So in this uh, particular passage in Corinthians, St. Paul is rejecting cultural and, I guess, societal ethics and norms. St. Paul is particularly addressing kind of libertine and dualistic attitudes that he's finding in the Corinthian community. So Paul is subtly, or not so subtly, countering some popular slogans of the time. Not in this reading, in the verse, like just before we get our passage today, he quotes something as, all things are lawful for me, to which Paul says, not quite, because the Corinthian community is using that idea of all things are lawful to me to engage in sinful activity. This has led into a libertine attitude of towards the body of I can kind of use my body however I choose and however I want, but in a sense, my spirit remains Christian, and I'm still committed to Christ, but my body I use however I want. Paul rejects this and says, the body is not made for, immor for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. He's going to develop this idea because the body 
partakes in the resurrection. Is his idea is that Christ was not raised in his soul or in his spirit, but he was raised body and soul from the dead. So this idea that we can split the body and soul is something that St. Paul is going to reject. This is factoring into his development of morality and his idea of what it means to have life in Christ. While doing that, St. Paul relies on kind of the notion of believers as members of the body of Christ. And in order to do this, he makes uh, a reference, kind of a veiled reference, to, to Genesis, where he says that, in, in Genesis, uh, in the bodily union, the sexual union, two people become one flesh. So he's going to say here that a bodily union with anyone other who's not your spouse is illicit and it subverts the physical act. However, it's not just an act of your body. It's an act of your body and your soul. And he's saying that you, what you need to do is display your commitment to Christ in your body. And your body is made for God and for the Lord, not for your own freedom and gratification. Whether in life and death, your soul and your body belong to God. He has this line here, whoever is joined to the Lord becomes a one spirit with him. St. John of the Cross also kind of hits, hits on this idea that once you are baptized, in a sense you are then the, the spouse of the soul becomes a kind of a, a spouse of Christ. It becomes a, in union with Christ. He says that just as in marriage, man and woman become one flesh. So he says kind of in spiritual marriage, in baptism, the two become one. Your spirit and the spirit of Christ become one thing. We can take that a step further in that although St. Paul doesn't articulate it this way, kind of later with incorporation of philosophy, what we'll see is that the body and soul are one thing. They're not separate. That's, kind of, that's a dualistic notion that St. Paul is constantly fighting against is this idea that, again, I can do what I want with my body because my body is distinct from my soul. I think you, you might even kind of hear that today. This idea that I have a fundamental spiritual commitment to Christianity or to Christ, even though I do these other things with my body. But there's no kind of inner penetration of body and spirit. St. Paul and the Catholic tradition and St. John the Cross Reject that. Again, your spirit and your body are one thing. So sins against the body are also sins against your soul. St. Paul elevates this and says that your body is actually a temple to God, that you, since you've been baptized, in your body dwells the spirit of God, just as in physical buildings and in churches, you can say that the spirit of God dwells in there. So he's saying that this temple that is your body was won by the redemption of Christ on the cross, that it doesn't belong to you, it belongs to Christ. So you're not free to do what you want. Not only are you not free to do what you want because of the immorality and the sin that causes damage to your body and to the body of believers and to you know the, the mystical body of Christ, but also that it, your, your existence was purchased by Christ on the cross. So bodily activity does have spiritual consequences, and the body has this relationship to God as kind of temple and indwelling. The sin against yourself is a sin against God and against the, the larger community as well. Freedom for St. Paul can only make sense in context of 
of belonging to God, that there is no freedom which is disconnected from God. So I'd like to to hit on a, a few ideas here. One is idolatry in the Old Testament is always kind of framed as adultery or a an unfaithful spouse. And so that's part of what St. Paul is getting at here is when he's talking about do not use your body for immorality. He, what he's trying to say is, you know, there, there are Corinthians who are engaging in illicit sexual activity, and there are perhaps temple prostitutes that are, that are also, that's also happening here. So he's saying that by engaging in these activities, you are being, you are defiling your body as the, as the temple in the Old Testament was defiled. So one way you can picture this is the soul is like a, a temple that has many altars in it, but it should have one altar. There should be one altar on your soul, which is where you offer spiritual sacrifice and prayers to God. But what St. Paul is saying is by your sins of the body, by these sins of immorality, you are setting up false idols in your soul. You're setting up false altars in your temple. And there you are offering sacrifice to these foreign gods, these other gods of your creation, when you should only have the one, the one altar where you offer it to God. Idolatry and infidelity always kind of go together. So he's saying, don't be, use, you know, think of your body and think of your soul as, as a temple. What would, what would you want in that temple? Be only, if you say, I'm a Christian, that should be the only God that is worshipped in your soul. If that's not the case, then you are committing kind of adultery against God. You are worshipping and sacrificing to foreign gods. The other aspect of this is what I talked about from the psalm, the idea of embodiment. The sacrifice taking place must be a sacrifice of your will on that spiritual altar, but it also must be something that is done in your body, that you can't be a Gnostic dualist here and say, yes, I use my body how I want, but deep down, spiritually, I'm a Christian. Both the psalmist and St. Paul here are saying, no, you have to embody your faith in Christ by following him in the body, that it is through your physical existence you demonstrate to the world and are a witness to the world that you, in fact, are a Christian and that you, in fact, follow Christ. So there is no separation. You can never separate the two, body and soul. Gnosticism is uh, a heresy that St. Paul will battle and that the, quite frankly, the church at large will battle for hundreds of years. And I, I would say, I don't know if uh, uh, Gnosticism in the form of separation of body and soul, I don't know if it's ever disappeared, to be honest. It's, it's a perennial temptation to separate body and soul. So what does this have to do with a divine call? That's the theme of the readings is God's divine call. Well, technically nothing, because the second reading is not intentionally connected to the first reading and the gospel. But I think we can make it work, or I'm going to try to make it work. Tell me what you think. By using your body how you will, or however you want, you are asleep 
to God's presence in your soul. Sin puts God to sleep. St. John will say, St. John the Cross will say that God dwells in the deepest center of your soul. The reason why people don't find Christ and God dwelling in the deepest of their soul, the center of their being, is because they don't go looking for him. Or that they have too much distraction, too many distractions going on to even bother to look for God in the depths of their soul. So in, in a way, God sleeps in the depths of everyone's soul. I think that the West, this isn't my phrasing or I didn't come up with this, but the West has been called Christ haunted. That we're, we're haunted by this idea of Christ. We can't get away from him. And I think part of this is that despite the kind of growing uh, group of, of nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, nuns, there are, are people who are moving away from religion. There's still a decent amount of people who are baptized and validly baptized. Or there are people who have been baptized and fallen away. And I think it's because despite the fact God sleeps in the center of your soul when you, you, know, when you move away from him, this doesn't stop him from calling out like he called out to Samuel. That God is this thing that itches at your conscience. You know, St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas will call an irritated conscience a, a vermin or the worm of conscience. It kind of eats away and gnaws at you. And I think even when God is asleep in our souls, he does that. And I think people are, are haunted by this because still, whether we want to believe it or not, Christ and Christianity is the, the foundation. It's the sleeping foundation of the Western world. And so we, we, can't, we can't get away from him. He still is calling out, you know, Samuel, Samuel. But unlike Samuel, most times we don't open ourselves up and say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We think it must be something else that's calling our name. We, we think it's, it's Eli who's calling our name and not, not God. So God is still calling us. He, he, he dwells in the temple of our bodies. He, his altar is there. It may be a neglected side altar. It might be overgrown with weeds, but he dwells there still, sleeping, but he's waiting. He's waiting for us to kind of clear out the dirt, all the distractions, and, to, and take the greatest adventure, which is down into the depths of our soul. That that's what God is always calling us to every morning, really, to take the journey to the center of our being where he dwells in silence and to be silent with him. In a sense, to, to, rot, to lay in the sleep of repose with him. Because again, just because God's asleep in our souls doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. But it is bad if, it, if he's asleep because we don't choose to awake with him, right? You know, we, we put him to sleep as opposed to to him resting peacefully in our souls. So God is, is calling us to take that journey into the temple, to awaken him, you know, even though he, he never sleeps, but to us he's awake, but to go into it, to go into our souls, to awaken him, and to have a, a true union with him. That's how I'm going to try to connect the second reading to the other readings. Tell me what you think. So moving on to the gospel. The gospel is from First John. Uh, 35 through 42. This is also a very popular gospel. I think think kind of our three readings are pretty well known. So in this passage, we get that John was standing with two of his disciples 
And as he watched Jesus walk by, St. John says, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard what he said and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you looking for? So I dubbed this, I'm sure other people have, but I dubbed this the eternal question. It's at least one of the eternal questions. I think there's a handful in the Bible of questions that kind of echo throughout the ages and address themselves to every person of every time that they must answer. They they can ignore it. They can, again, put God to sleep, but it will gnaw at them until they finally put it to rest. I think the first eternal question of the Bible is in Genesis, when after the fall of Adam and Eve, God goes into the garden and searches for them and says, where are you? And in many ways, this question, this eternal question of where are you becomes the question of the Bible, becomes the guiding question of the, uh, of the narrative of the whole Bible, which is God is always calling out to sinful humanity, where are you? So now again, in the Gospel of John, which bears a lot of resemblance to Genesis, because you, know, you have in Genesis in the beginning, then you have in John, in the beginning was the word. The first words addressed to another to anyone by Christ in the Gospel of John is this question. What are you looking for? And that's the question that Christ issues to us today, tomorrow, and for all eternity. What are you looking for? And of course, Christ is speaking on different levels. On one hand, it's He's wondering why these two guys are following him. And he's, what are you looking for? But then he's also asking this deeper penetrating level of what are you seeking? What do you, what do you hope to find? As some commentators note, he doesn't say like, whom are you seeking? Whom are you looking for? But what? Because they know who he is to some degree. St. John has pointed him and said, this is the Lamb of God. So now they're saying, okay, we want to find more. We follow him. So the two disciples respond, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you saying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they went and saw where Jesus was staying. and They stayed with him that day. So this is symbolic of Christ saying kind of enter enter into my, my dwelling. The dwelling of the Lord is a very popular theme in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. You know, it's one day within your house, you know, is better than a thousand elsewhere. So Christ is saying here, by staying with me, we can say it's a, a symbol of, of union, of intimacy. He's saying, if you follow me, you can enter into my joy, enter into my place of dwelling, and there we will kind of converse as, as friends and as, as intimates. But then there's this interesting note where it says, so they went and saw what Jesus was saying. They stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. A weird note, right? That you just kind of quickly jotted down the time. Why does that matter? So one principle I like to work by is remembering that words in the ancient world were not cheap. You know, words now, I feel like they could be very cheap. You know, we have such mass communication. You can, you could write the whole Gospel of John 
all the words very easily, very fast, and jot down you know whatever you want. But in the ancient world, writing is very intentional. It's expensive. Not everyone can do it. Time uh, consuming. So why this note about what time it was? So was it symbolic? Was it literal? It's clearly important. So what's going on here? So if we take it as literal, means um, that the four o'clock in the afternoon is also translated to the tenth hour in some other go- or in some other translations. That that's important. I'll get into that. So if we take the time four in the afternoon literally, this is I believe the time of temple sacrifice. This is tied to what St. John said, behold the Lamb of God. Christ is saying, or what St. John, John the evangelist is trying to say here is, now when they began to follow the true Lamb of God is when the other lambs, the natural lambs, were being sacrificed. That's one possibility. It's also, if we kind of divide the days into 12 hours, if we have 12 hours of daylight, the 10th hour would be evening. So at nighttime, this is where we might want to switch to a symbolic interpretation. So if there are 12 hours of daylight, the 10th hour is the, the beginning of, of darkness. As darkness begins to fall, they follow Christ, who at the beginning of the Gospel of John is called the light, and that the light shines in the darkness. So there's this, this symbol here of, of the apostles seeing the light shining in the darkness, that even though in, on one hand the light has come, Christ is the light of the world, on the other, there is still the, 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 the powers of darkness. They're still you know, kind of reigning and have power. But despite kind of the, the waning cosmic hour, Christ is the light that overcomes that. We can take it that in the evening hours is when, when you know, things began to, to grow dark in the world. Christ appears and bids the apostles to follow him. This is a bit of a different call narrative than what we had in the first one, right? In the first one, God is calling out and Samuel opens himself up in faith and says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. However, in this gospel, in the gospel of John, we have that he doesn't necessarily call them. He just walks by and the disciples recognize who who it is that walks by. But it's, I would still say it's following, it's following the same basic formula or the same basic idea because you have St. John pointing to Christ and saying, behold, the Lamb of God, and he symbolizes somebody who is preaching the truth. And the disciples trust John and say, if you say this is who this man is, we will follow him to find out. You know, we, we'll, we'll at least trust you insofar as to follow him. And then once we enter into his dwelling place, we will find more. We'll come to greater revelation of who he is. Once they come to a greater understanding of who Christ is by staying with him, they then turn around and go and call other people. So that we have a model here of evangelization or, or what the whole purpose of following Christ is. And, and the purpose is that you follow Christ, you, you enter into his dwelling symbolically, you learn of him, you, you grow in intimacy with him, and then you go and you share that good news. And as the disciples did, they went to Peter and they said, we have found the Messiah. But in order to, to find the Messiah, 
in order to, to have that relationship, you have to follow Christ. And again, it goes back to embodiment, that they literally followed him. They didn't kind of see Jesus from afar and say, you know, well, I, I follow him in spirit or I follow him in idea. No, you have to take your body and your spirit and literally walk after him. Christ leads the way. He is the the, the, the pathfinder, the, the path cutter, as a letter to the Hebrews calls him. And you have to follow in that way, follow in that path. And then once you have that that in powerful encounter, you experience that divine call, then you can call others to experience that or invite them to, you can invite them to experience the same thing that you experienced. So I, I think this divine call here begins with the question, what are you looking for? We have to open ourselves to that question. Be like Samuel, be like Samuel and say, speak Lord, your servant is listening. The way that Christ answers that question may be unexpected. Come and you will see. That that will take on a very particular and personalized event to come and see. The idea of seeing and remaining is very popular or very dense theologically in St. John's Gospel. To see Christ is to have a an encounter with him that is life-changing. This is where we get the encounter with, uh, or the the event and episode with St. Thomas, where he puts his fingers in the side of Christ and in, in his wounds. I see and believe. In, in the first epistle of St. John, you have what we have seen, what we have touched, we communicate to you. I think that can still happen. I think we can still have that experience of seeing Christ, at least mystically or spiritually, but we have to kind of open ourselves up with that call of speak, uh, like here I, here I am, that we, we have to kind of wake up God in our souls. <laughs> you know, it, again, that's spiritual, you know, he doesn't actually sleep, but you have to open up the, kind of clean out the temple of your soul to find him, to, to clear out, the destroy the other altars, to, to tear down the abominations and the altars of your, your, your soul that, you know, like, like what was seen in the Old Testament and kind of rouse the Lord to, to awake him, then you will see. You will come and see. You will enter into the dwelling where, where Christ stays, and you will remain with him there. By going down into the depths of your soul and finding where God sleeps, you will be able to wake yourself up, wake up God, and you will dwell. You will come and you will see, and you will dwell with Christ. I'm going to stop it there. Thank you for listening. I will be back next week. Remember, if you have any questions, if you'd like me to talk about anything, please email me at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.